Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm pleased to share a session from the 2018 pod, Partnership Opportunities and Drug Delivery Conference, with Dr. Jeffrey Karp, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Jeff was our bio-inspirational keynote, where he discussed medical technologies being developed from nature. Please note that the 2019 pod conference takes place in Boston on October 7th and 8th. Enjoy this podcast. Good morning. I'd like to start by telling you a story about rejection. And believe me, I have many to choose from. When I started my lab in 2007, one of the first big ideas that we had was to take stem cells out of the body to be able to modify their surface and then inject them back into the body to try and program them to go anywhere they needed to go. For example, imagine if we could take stem cells and target the bone to treat osteoporosis, or the gut to alleviate inflammatory bowel disease, or the joints to treat arthritis. We really thought the possibilities here would be limitless. And so as the first major project in my lab, we began advancing this, and by 2009, we had made some exciting progress. We had figured out how to modify the surface of cells to enhance the homing to sites of inflammation. And I really saw this as a major advance at the time, was really super excited, and started thinking about maybe I could start a company on this and bring this to patients. So I went and met with Nubar and Dave from Flagship Ventures, and they looked at it, and we went through the technology, and they said to me, you know, this is really great technology, and it's going to make a great academic paper, but it's too risky for us to fund. It's too complicated. And so I was kind of devastated, but I knew I needed to listen more. And as I thought more about what we had been developing, we had created a five-step process that worked in an animal model, but we hadn't even considered all the challenges that our invention would face as it transitioned to the commercial marketplace. And Nubar and Dave really nicely explained to me the challenges in manufacturing and that this would just require a lot more investment to move it forward, and it was just really too high risk. And so I went back to my lab. If I had a tail, it would have been between my legs. But I really knew I had to take this advice to heart. And this single interaction with Dave and Newbar completely changed the way that I go about projects in my laboratory. And it led to this concept that I like to refer to as radical simplicity, which is really trying from the very beginning of every project that we start to think about manufacturing, to think about regulatory, and to simplify at every possible stage along the way. And I want to share with you a couple of projects that we've been working on in the lab where this concept has been really pivotal to allow us to bring technologies out of the academic setting and be at least en route towards commercial applications. So this is my daughter, Jordan. She was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when she was five. She's currently nine. And here she is getting an infusion of Antivio, Takeda's drug. She's also taking sulfazalazine and Canasa. And when my daughter was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, we had already been doing a little bit of work in the IBD field, but this really strengthened our motivation and passion to try to advance some new approaches. 
And one of the big challenges, I think, with ulcerative colitis, and there are many, is that most patients will require enema-based therapy at some point during the course of their life. And enema-based therapy is very challenging for a number of reasons. One, compliance is low because usually you have to dose every day. Also, the patient has to retain the enema, which can be difficult just to maximize the exposure with the ulcerated tissue. And the third is that the drug can go systemic and create a lot of side effects. And so we were interested in trying to develop an approach that could be maybe a more effective enema-based therapy. And we immediately gravitated towards complexity, synthesizing new materials, but we stopped ourselves. And we really wanted to gain some critical insights that may allow us to advance a simple approach that would stand a chance of being able to be brought to patients. And one of the insights that we gained was that we realized that ulcerated tissue, and in general, inflamed tissue, at least in the topical sense, has a net positive charge. And so we started thinking that maybe we could use, instead of using something complicated or more complex like antibodies or other targeting motifs, maybe we'd be able to use charge as a way for a material, let's say if we kind of envision maybe some sort of a gel material that we would put into suspension, we do enema-based infusion, this would rapidly attach to the ulcers, and then potentially we could also get it to selectively attach and release at the site of the ulcers. So we thought if we made a material that had a negative charge, we might be able to get it just enough targeting to make a difference. And so this concept was we have a suspension of gel-based particles. They'd immediately attach to the ulcer, so the patient wouldn't need to retain the enema. We'd have selective release at the site of the ulcers, so we'd be able to get less systemic absorption. And if the material stuck to the ulcers long enough, we may even be able to reduce the dosing regimen. So maybe we could move to dosing every other day or maybe even once a week. So that was the concept. And so we wanted to keep things simple. And so what we did is we looked at the agents that are on the generally recognized as safe list by FDA. And we specifically look for amphiphiles, so molecules that have hydrophobic and hydrophilic domains that also have an enzyme cleavable bond and that were negatively charged. And the reason is, is because we were interested in using this as a self-assembly platform to form a hydrogel. So I'm sure most people here are familiar with liposomes and micelles. Well, it's also possible to coax these systems into forming a gel. And so we were able to find agents on the generally recognized as safe list that could assemble as a hydrogel. This is an electron micrograph that we're looking at here. These nano or these fibers are on the order of, let's say, hundreds of nanometers or several microns across, and they can be hundreds of microns long. And what you're looking at here is actually a single molecule that's just been stacked on top of itself over and over and over again. There's no excipients. There's no polymer here. It's really just self-assembly of a small molecule. And what's great about this system, other than the uh, simplicity around it, is during the assembly process, we can easily incorporate all kinds of different drugs into this system. And then in the presence of inflammation, where you have enzymes like esterases or MMPs, this can cleave the amphiphile and release the payload. And so I don't have time to get into all the details, but suffice to say, we were able, uh, over the course of a few years, we were able to develop this system 
and get it to work to address all of the key design criteria that I mentioned. We showed that this would selectively attach to ulcers from tissue from mice as well as from human IBD patients. We were able to show that this could also attach to ulcers in the oral cavity. And we were able to demonstrate, and this was was recently published, we were able to demonstrate that we could reduce systemic absorption of the drug by five to ten times. We showed that the gel immediately attached to the ulcers, and we also were able to reduce the dosing regimen. And so this is a platform of platforms, actually, and this, this technology goes far beyond ulcerative colitis. We've been able to demonstrate efficacy, or at least function, for 10 different medical applications for this. So we recently started a company, Olivio Therapeutics is a company I co-founded with Bob, and now they've been advancing this platform for a number of diseases, and IBD is one of the major focus areas. And one of the ways to think about this is that we're taking agents from the generally recognized as safe list, we're forming these into hydrogels, and these gels can be administered in many different formats. As a suspension, we can form the gel directly in a syringe, and we have many benefits. This system can selectively attach to inflamed tissue and then selectively release drugs at the site of the inflamed tissue because of the enzyme-cleavable bonds that exist within the amphiphiles. And here's just a list of some of the applications that we've been pursuing. We have multiple publications on this technology, and I think there's a lot of potential for this drug delivery system to be an enabling technology for many different types of drugs. About the same time that we were working on this, I was contacted by Fred Schoen, who's the vice chair of pathology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, And he had been having conversations with Ali Tavacoli, who's a bariatric surgeon at my institution, the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And Ali had been thinking a lot about recent discovery, which was a lot of patients who are getting gastric bypass procedure as a treatment for obesity, their type 2 diabetes, those who had it, was going into remission. So something like 50% of patients who had type 2 that were getting this gastric bypass procedure went into remission, and the other 50% were benefiting in different ways. And so he's dedicated his laboratory to try to understand the mechanism, and it's not fully understood, but he had this realization that maybe this could be done in a more simple manner. One of the big challenges is that very few patients qualify for gastric bypass procedure, and for those who qualify, very few actually go ahead with the procedure for a variety of reasons. And so what we started discussing was, is it possible to mimic the beneficial effects of gastric bypass procedure in a pill? Could we create a pill that would transiently coat the proximal gut just for a matter of two or three hours? Maybe a patient would take this before a meal, for example, and this would reduce nutrient contact with the proximal gut. So very similar to how gastric bypass works, where you're essentially bypassing the stomach and the proximal GI tract. And so this was the concept, and we really wanted to keep things as simple as possible to maximize potential to bring this to patients. And so what we did is we initially did a screen where we took materials, we put them on a membrane in a a Franz diffusion-type chamber, and we selected materials that were very easy to work with. Many were on the generally recognized as safe list. And we screened these agents for their ability to block glucose absorption. And one of the top materials that kind of bubbled up to the list was sucrophate, which is a drug that has been used to treat gastric and duodenal ulcers by selectively attaching to the ulcers and minimizing interaction with fluids in the body. But one of the problems 
is that many of these materials, our initial testing was just looking at glucose absorption, but as soon as we added a dynamic flow condition to this to try to mimic the dynamic process of the gut, what we found is that a lot of materials would just wash away off our filter. But one of the materials that remained was the sucralfate. And sucralfate is a really interesting material because what happens is you take it as a pill in powder form, it gets converted by reacting with stomach acid into a paste, and then it selectively attaches to ulcerated tissue. So we're pretty excited about this, to be able to find a drug that's already been used in millions of patients. And so we started advancing. But what we soon realized is that sucralfate doesn't coat healthy tissue very well. And here's just a video showing if you put sucralfate and contact stomach acid and then try to apply it to a healthy GI tissue, it doesn't really spread very well on that tissue. And so we knew we needed to modify this material, and so we took a few years, and we were able to come up with a very simple approach just by changing how we processed the sucralfate. We didn't need to add any excipients or anything to it. We just found a really simple way of changing how we process it. And we were able to come up with a very simple approach that would form these really incredible coatings on gut tissue. So here you can see the material on the opposite end of the spatula, and we're just pulling it across the tissue, and that's actually enough to form a very thin coating on that entire piece of tissue. And just to prove to you that it's there, when we put this underwater, you can see the surface of the tissue now has this kind of opaque white coating, and so you can see that it's very, very stable. So after a few years of work, we were able to do a number of studies and demonstrate in a rat model that this has potential to work. And so when we administer this and then gavage glucose and do a glucose tolerance test, oral glucose tolerance test in these animals, we're able to significantly reduce glucose absorption on the order of 45 to 50%. And we've done a lot of studies looking at the dose and the viscosity and a lot of other properties of this material. And we've also been able to show here in the imaging, you can see that we have some nice coating of the proximal GI tract. And so we're in the process of now thinking about how we can move this forward to human studies. But along the way, we also discovered that this material could be very interesting for delivery of biologics and other drugs. And one of the nice things about the newly engineered material or simply engineered material that we developed is that it doesn't require contacting stomach acid to form the paste. So we can deliver this directly to the duodenum or to the stomach, and it works quite well. And so what we were able to do is we were able to incorporate temperature-sensitive drugs or biologics into this material. And because it's a paste, it actually is a natural barrier from the enzymes in the low pH environment of the stomach. We're able to show we could retain a lot of the biological activity if we were incorporated drugs into this material. And then also, as you see here on the bottom, we were able to show that if we deliver this to an animal and we come back 24 hours later, we can see this model biologic throughout the entire GI tract. And so this might be an opportunity where we can locally control the PK of drugs via oral delivery, and we're in the process of advancing this in a number of directions. Another problem that we've been working on, again going back to 2007 or so, is this problem of really minimal innovation that we've seen in needles and, and ways of delivering drugs to tissues. And often when you place a needle, you know, 90, 95% of the time might get into the right location, but sometimes you miss and you have overshoot injuries or you can't get the drug directly to where you need it to go. 
And so we've been developing all kinds of needles that can automatically stop when they get to the right location. And again, with this concept of radical simplicity, where we don't require any imaging modality, we're just trying to create needles that don't require tactile feedback for the clinician to stop. They just automatically know when they're in the right location. So we've created a number of generations of needles, and I wanted to just highlight our most recent one. It's actually unpublished. It's just in the process of going through review right now. The concept for this needle is we essentially have taken a syringe and we have a stopper here. We've also added another stopper on the end of the syringe, this part, and we've attached the needle to it. So the needle and the fluid where you'd have your drug is directly connected all the way out here. And then you take this syringe and you put it right up against, let's say, the skin or the tissue that you're trying to apply this to. And what happens is, is that as you start pushing on the plunger, the needle will actually advance because the tip of the needle is encountering resistance because it's in a dense tissue, for example. And so as you push on this, there's so much resistance at the tip that this body of fluid just starts moving forward and that advances the needle into the tissue. And then what happens when you reach a cavity, for example, a potential space or a tissue with a lower density, is that now you have less resistance at the needle tip, and so as you continue to push on the plunger, then the fluid comes out of the needle and goes into that space. And we've been able to demonstrate efficacy for this in many different applications. I just want to highlight one application, which is probably the most challenging that we've ever tried, which is to see if this would be able to target the suprachoroidal space in the eye. And so what we did is we took this needle, and many different, we did rabbit eyes and all kinds of different animals, cow eyes and others, and in one proof of concept experiment, what we were able to do is take cells, we were able to inject in one part of the eye, and then we have a needle here, a second needle, where we're drawing the fluid out, and so the cells went all the way back around the eye and were able to come out of this needle and we showed we had almost 100% viability through this process. And so just to appreciate how difficult it is to achieve this, the sclera is, is extremely thin. You know, it's on the order of a millimeter or you know, somewhere in that range. And what happens is the choroid pushes up against the sclera because of the interocular pressure. And these two tissues are not attached, but there's a potential space there. And so we're essentially having our needle go through the sclera a millimeter or so and automatically stop when it gets in between these two tissues. And we've been able to show that we can deliver all kinds of different drugs as well as microparticles through this system. And now we're looking for opportunities to now advance this even further by thinking through, you know, what are the potential applications where we could create the greatest impact. We've also been able to see some drug being able to diffuse to the retina. So we're exploring that in more detail. For the people who were here last year, I talked a little bit about a tissue glue that we had developed. And this glue is interesting because it doesn't just bond to the surface of tissues. It actually infiltrates into the tissue. So as soon as you take this tissue glue that we've developed and put it onto tissue, and it works on wet tissue, it works inside a beating heart in many different places, it infiltrates into the tissue, and then we use light to activate the material that will cure it into an elastic final form. And so here you can see, this is just one example where we have our adhesive. We've just placed this onto the heart and then immediately cured it with light. And you can see that the glue has gone into and in between the collagen fibrils. 
And so this is how it attaches. So it's potentially a universal tissue adhesive. And the way we designed it was to make it hydrophobic so it would repel blood away from a tissue surface. And it's also viscous, so it doesn't migrate away from that site, but it can automatically just infiltrate into the tissue. And we can get light to go far enough to cure it and lock it into place. And last year, we received a CE mark in Europe for the tissue glue as a sealant for vascular reconstruction. And the company Gecko Biomedical, also co-founded with Bob, is in the process of you know, in discussions with FDA to start a trial, hopefully early next year. And this material can be used to deliver drugs to almost anywhere in the body. Since I spoke last year, I just wanted to show you some of the devices that we've been developing at the company. So now we have capabilities to spray this glue onto tissue, to apply it underwater. So there's a vacuum device. We can apply it so it has intimate contact with tissue anywhere in the body. And then here we can also deploy it in minimally invasive settings. And so there's opportunity to load this with drugs and have a depot potentially anywhere in the body. We've also been very interested in the field of regenerative medicine. I started by telling you about this moment of rejection where we had developed an approach to try and control the targeting of cells in the bloodstream that ended up being very complicated. And for many years, we've been thinking about, is there a way to simplify how we go about regenerative medicine? And so we started by looking at some creatures in nature. We looked at, you know, sharks can regenerate their teeth throughout life. Certain lizards, you can cut off their tail or a limb and it will completely regrow many times over. And so we started looking at humans and we do have significant regenerative potential, but it is limited to certain tissues. So the liver can regenerate if you remove a significant piece of it. But we thought maybe the most regenerative tissue in the human body was the lining of our intestine, the epithelium, which regenerates you know, every four to five days completely. And so we spent some time looking at the epithelium, and there's a stem cell that really is responsible for this that has a marker LGR5. It's a receptor on the surface, and it interacts with the Wnt pathway. And so what we did is we spent several years looking at that stem cell, and we figured out how to control that cell with small molecules. And so we could maintain that stem cell in an undifferentiated state and proliferate it with small molecules. And this has really opened up many avenues, uh, many different applications. And so what we did next is once we were looking at that, we started thinking, where could we apply this next where we'll have the greatest impact in human medicine? And it turns out that in your inner ear, we have progenitor cell. Everyone here has it. That cell is dormant, but that cell can form hair cells. And we're only born with 15,000 hair cells per inner ear, and they die throughout life. So our hearing is declining over time. They never regenerate. Those progenitor cells never divide, and we never, ever form new hair cells throughout our entire life. And the hair cells have these stereocilia, which sound hits them, and then they move, and then that gets converted to an electrical signal that gets sent to the brain. So very, very important cell type. And so we were able to take the small molecules that we showed worked in the intestine, and we were able to get the progenitor cell in the inner ear to proliferate. And this has led to really exciting opportunity I'll tell you about in a moment. I think one of the things that we've been doing a lot of work in cell therapy, starting to look at gene editing, but one of the things that really strikes me about this approach is that using small molecules really, at least today, really simplifies this whole process. And I think in some ways, it's a potential holy grail of today if we can find ways to deliver small molecules to regenerate tissue in the body.
And so we've been advancing this, and we started a company called Frequency Therapeutics, another company that I co-founded with Bob. And the idea is that we have small molecules that we put into a material injected into the middle ear, so we go through the tympanic membrane that if you make a small hole, it'll just self-seal. And then this material sits up against the round window membrane, which is the entrance to the cochlea, so molecules can diffuse across it and then diffuse through the entire cochlea. So we've done experiments to show this in many different animal models, And we can get to therapeutic levels just by injecting this material into the middle ear. And so what we envision is that patients would come into a clinic, and just like there's many clinics around the world where people who have middle ear infections will get an injection of an antibiotic, let's say, into their middle ear, or maybe they'll get a steroid, for example. It's a very quick procedure. And so they could enter an ENT office, get this injection. The drugs would diffuse through the round window membrane into the cochlea to activate the progenitor cells, which would then form new hair cells. And this may sound a little like science fiction, but we've been working on it for many, many years. And Frequency has a really incredible team and has been advancing this, a big push to the clinic. And we've been able to show in many different model systems that we can create new hair cells. So one example is there was a patient who had a tumor behind their cochlea, so we were able to access the cochlea and take the cells out. And we showed that these molecules could actually promote the proliferation of the progenitor cells and form new hair cells. We've also shown this with primate tissue. We've taken adult mice. We've deafened them and shown that we can restore their hearing with this approach, and we can achieve therapeutic levels in the cochlea. And so this has led to a small phase one that we recently completed in Australia and a phase one, two trial, which we just completed enrollment for here in the United States. And this is a platform. It goes far beyond uh, hearing restoration. And so Frequency is now applying this concept to many different disease applications. So in summary, I just wanted to highlight a couple tools that we use to try to maximize potential to bring new therapies forward. One is bio-inspiration, so we're constantly looking at nature to try to help us bring in new ideas. I feel like in many ways we're limited by the offices and laboratories and buildings where we work, and I think in many ways that limits our thinking, and we need to find ways to come up with new ideas, and I think looking at nature gets our minds out of the conventional places and into areas where we can learn how nature has solved problems and then incorporate those ideas into our projects. And then this concept of radical simplicity, which was really a hard lesson for me to learn, but I knew it was important and was really critical. And I think by thinking even at day one as we start projects of keeping things as simple as possible, that's really helped us to move some technologies out of the lab. I just want to close by showing you, this is Jordan, not that long ago, doing the floss dance, which I've been trying desperately to learn. But she's in full clinical remission now and really happy about that. She has had some flares along the way, so I know what the experience of that is like. But I think this process, you don't really realize how important and that new therapeutics is until you have a family member or a friend who actually needs it. And so I'm just very appreciative and grateful for all the work that everyone here is doing to develop new therapies that can help people like my daughter. So thank you so much for your attention. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Pod 2018. The Pod 2019 event takes place October 7th and 8th in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org.